Welcome to a That Stack of Books Extra author interview. Nick Licata has always been one of those politicians I love to talk to because Nick Licata has always been straight. Licata set out to be a citizen activist long before he took his politics into the Seattle City Council, and he continues that work now that he is retired, writing, raising alarms, and encouraging the next generation of activists. Licata believes you can fight City Hall, and you can join it, too. Elected politicians respond to citizens who organize, who rally, and who compromise. Licata fought and lost a lot of battles during his five terms on the council, but his voice shaped many debates and many policies. He wants more people to step up and enter the battle, and to that end he has written Becoming a Citizen Activist, Stories, Strategies, and Advice for Changing Our World. We sat down to talk at the Green Lake Coffee Shop, Revolutions Espresso. I wanted to meet you at a place called Revolutions Coffee. I saw that. I was wondering if there was a subtext here. There was a subtext. Yes. I thought you'd feel at home. Oh, I do, yes. Are you a revolutionary? Did you think you'd No, you, think you know, it's one? funny. I, I wasn't ever really a revolutionary, although I describe myself actually as a radical. And in some ways, I still believe that's true in the traditional sense of the word radical, getting at the root of a problem. And, uh, tackling at that level as opposed to just the um, manifestations. Nick Licata, named Progressive Municipal Official of the Year by the nation. Yes. Becoming a citizen activist, stories, strategies, and advice for changing our world. So I thought, all right, here we are. This is Green Lake. You live in Greenwood. Yes. Uh, some of your first activism was in the U District. That's correct, right. Point me out a place visually in your mind yeah. <laughs> where you can say, all right, my activism, my engagement with community, put the city, put the neighborhood on this particular progressive path. Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned I was first active in the university district because the very first uh, community uh, activism I was involved with, and I was still a graduate student at the time, in the University of Washington in sociology, um, was um, actually working with the community trying to stop the first, and to date at least, the only high-rise in the university district. It was for many years a Safeco Tower. I think UW has now purchased it. And we en ended up actually suing the developer. And uh, the settlement was that they would complete the building, but they uh, they purchased um, membership in the community council for X number of years in the future. And so that provided a uh, income stream. So those are the kinds of solutions which I, I always find um, worthy, not as an individual case uh, benefiting, but for the community. And for many years, um, high rises were not part of the landscape of the university. For better or worse, there are some arguments I can see where you want, obviously, as we expand around the region to concentrate growth, but it was certainly inappropriate 40 years ago, and, uh, and it's going to be debated, in fact, this coming year as they look at towards an upzone in the university district. Why was it inappropriate 40 years ago in your uh, heart? In, your heart in, and in my heart, it was basically, it was still very much a, um, I would say a pretty well-knit community of not just uh, residents, uh, but also people who work there and, like myself, students who lived there but also studied there. Um, and the way it was, um, way it came off was pretty much 
hey, you know, we found in this instance, I think it was just a parcel of land that allowed for it to occur, and we just put it up. There was almost no community input. Part of what I took from this book, compromises is part of the game. That's what politics is. Change is part of the game. But that citizens should be a part at the table. Right. And, and that's what you objected to early on some of the work you did as a as a college student right and i guess even with the university district uh height restrictions it was that mm, citizens weren't part of the process right exactly part of the reason citizens aren't part of the process is because citizens sometimes don't really care oh oh i would say most often they don't really care it's because often you know they have busy lives and are not going to be um, immersed in political minutiae. But one of the points I'm making in the book and what I've tried to do throughout my years of activism is that people need to look around at their political and social environment. And if they are unsatisfied, then they should know what the tools are available to change it. Um, know what the tools are right and that's where the that's the rub right that's Knowing the, the tools. rub because i think often they don't know but the first step quite honestly is consciousness i mean you know to be over the line you know marx used to say basically the first step is class consciousness i wouldn't go to say that we necessarily need class consciousness but you do need consciousness of where of how your environment and shapes everything the physical environment social environment political environment, economic environment, is being shaped for you if you do not take a conscious uh, position in either supporting it or t trying to take a position in changing it. So back to in the university district, because later we had the CAP proposal in the 90s. That's right. What we've had, that you're, you're part of that, right? Yes, that's right, myself uh, and Peter Steinberg. Yeah. The, the, the notion was let's not let the city grow too tall because why? Well, it's not just a, a question of tall. The CAP initiative, in some ways, uh, which was limited just to downtown. Um, and, by the way, I've never really had a problem with just height for this problem of being height. Yeah. You know? I mean, no, not necessarily. Um, I think it's part of a, a larger balance you have to take into account. Even back at the U District days? Was well, that a certainly. balance? Yeah, yeah, in that case, yes. And part of it is that when you concentrate... Let's put it this way. You build a tall building, and if you don't have others around you, what you're doing, you're concentrating residents, you're concentrating workers, you're basically you're impacting the physical environment through traffic congestion. You're impacting the social environment because you're, you know, positively allowing more people to uh, live in an area or shop in an area. So, therefore, you, you know, you have more economic activity. But along with those um, repercussions, there are public costs. And the argument is that if you're going to um, promote, encourage uh, concentration of jobs or residents, then you have to make sure the residents have open space. You have to make sure that you're not just tossing people into a crowded community. And if you're increasing workers, you have to make sure they've got good public services, transportation being the main one. Why, especially even in progressive Seattle, that has been... I want to say a hard sell because everybody talks about it on your former with your among your former colleagues. Yes, and yet it has been a difficult um, thing to implement institutionally. I look at South Lake Union. 
Yes. Where's the open space in South Lake Union? Right. Where was the where was the guiding force to help the development be a little more uh, interesting as well as human? Mm-hmm. So, yes, you're part of those. You're part of that battle. Yes. What What was the uh, What was the uh, inability to recognize those values? Where, where did those stem from? Your the folks. Are, I don't want to say they weren't your opponents, but as you moved to get things passed. You know, different things failed, impact fields failed, then they succeeded. What was the what was well, the rub? Well, look at the most recent example where we had a, what they call a street vacancy uh, for uh, a development in Amazon uh, in the South Lake Union area. Usually street vacancies, as a technical term, basically means all streets are public property. A developer wants to develop that uh, street. They buy the rights in the city. And basically, uh, well, we give them the street in exchange. We expect public benefits. My argument was that if they're going to use it for open space, they should allow the public to have access to the open space in alignment with what we've done with other pro- open space properties around the city where we where we basically say a developer can build higher in exchange we want a plaza, and that plaza is privately owned but publicly ex- accessible. And I lost that debate <laughs> because I was arguing that we should have that property be open to people, not 24-7, because even the law doesn't say that for these other properties, but basically the majority, certainly the daylight, I mean, all the daylight time and some part of the twilight areas, but also allow people to do what they wish on that as long as they don't disturb the public or destroy property. And there was no support for that. So that's part of your book. Yes. That's part of the notion of this book, Becoming a Citizen Activist, is how and when you gather public support so why was there no support why is why is it tough to get public support let's stick with the open space notion. sure yeah why is it tough to get public support for uh, getting more open space into established neighborhoods or into developing neighborhoods well if you're talking about established neighborhoods and getting more open space and all the lands occupied then you're talking about a cost factor you know we do pass property uh, increased property taxes for uh, park levies, and, and a good portion of that money is actually spent for acquisition of land. Um, the other way is developers, basically. Again, it's a quid pro quo. You get something higher, um, the ability to build higher or uh, wider um, portion of the, of the lot, and in exchange, you provide open space. The difference is that when you use public funds like property tax for a, a, prop for a, a park levy, that is truly parkland and truly open. When you attach it to a private development, it's not, it's public used, but it's privately owned. It's, yeah, there's, there's signs that say this is a, right. you're welcome here, public, but we own this. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm, again, I talk about it in the book. Um, for a long time, we didn't have those signs up. Uh, in fact, I had to do a survey. In fact, I forced the city to do a survey of what was it called? Pops, you know, uh, publicly, privately owned public spaces, and there was no no catalog of them. And we'd sign these contracts with these uh, businesses, uh, developers, and they'd build the plaza, it'd be open to the public, and then the ownership would change, the management would change, and there was no sign. No one knew about it, and people forgot about it. And there was a gradual privatization of all this open space. I want to come. I want to come back. To, I want to come to that. But I want to. Add, but so my question is, again, what, like, what, what levers? Do citizens give, give have the book? Yeah. What's this, What are the levers that citizens might, might, use to, 
prod those business owners right. or the new business owners right. to build and maintain open space in these, you know, because that's the whole complaint yes. about what's happening in our city. Like right. we're building up. Where's the uh, where are the amenities? Where's the community centers? Where's the open space? Do we need demonstrations? I mean, you have many ways to suggest people get involved, but yes, a lot of people show up at hearings and they take part in right. those hearings and then they go home. And that was my, my one of my points is that it's good to be conscious of what the changes are needed, and it's good to speak out, but you have to organize. And organizing is not a part-time task. Um, you need allies. If there's institutionalized, that better for it. That means that they have some paid staff, and they can devote it to it. In the area of open space, the natural allies would be like the Sierra Club, for instance. Um, you do have some groups that are borderline. They're not necessarily uh, designed for open space uh, that have paid staff. And I'm thinking of like Transportation Choices, for instance, is out there. Uh, fuses out there. There's some others that are focused on, and this is the sort of the struggle right now. They're focused on good urban living, and that means more density. But there isn't an equivalent, what I've seen at least so far, as a push for open space. There are a few uh, community groups around open space, but they're volunteer organizations. So what's what's the game plan? The game plan is you. you the first thing is you you obviously have to show up speak a public testimony, but you also need an ally inside the government. You need someone basically to bring it before their committee. You need allies in the media to make sure that they cover that meeting. You need everyone from uh, you know, reporters to columnists to focus on that issue. You do need sometimes to do actual protests because that will draw not just the attention of the media, but it will show the importance of it. So there is a role for protest, actual protest, perhaps disruptive for that matter. But outside of that, you also need good data. And that's, again, where you have to do some hard work. If you don't have allies that have that data, you have to collect it yourself. You know, one of the first things you did when you were elected to Seattle City Council was commission, along the lines of that open space, you commissioned a study of all the street ends around Lake Union. Yes, I did. And, yeah. and we did a couple of stories about that. We yes. talked about it at the time. So now, 18 years later? Right. Um, the fruits of that? Can you see any of the fruits of that? Yes, there are some fruits of that. In fact, yeah, along the shore, North Shore, uh, in the Ballard area, there were some spots that, in fact, were uh, open to the public that were not. And I think uh, also, yes, in East Lake, there were a couple of spots also. You know, not as many as the total street ends, but uh, we did, in fact, capture street end use for, for open space. In fact, recently just had a battle in Lake Washington where there was a street end that um, the argument was that it was the paperwork was never done properly so it was controlled by the private individuals and they demanded it be used we had to in that case because we felt we'd probably lose the case have to actually buy the property but hmm. um but there, there were successes and i think this is the important part people have to realize that if you if you recognize a problem you organize and you fight it you may lose the battle but you have you have to continue fighting on it if you expect to win. I mean, I use the big example of same-sex marriage and also legalizing marijuana. But in the case of the open street ends, you know, we actually took a couple of years, but we finally did win. And we have some victories there that we can point to. We didn't get all the street ends. And there's probably another effort that needs to be made. But there were victories. You know, there's nothing like 
a positive win to make someone feel good about themselves and about being alive. You know, you uh, you also write in here about the the initial efforts to confront the problems in the Seattle Police Department and the initial uh, uh, citizens' involvement in police reform. I mean, that's been ongoing in this well in this city. It's been going since the '60s, really. Right. right. Well, and I'll tell you the truth: being involved with a lot of other activist groups and tracking what's going on in other cities, it's an ongoing problem in every single. American, large American city I've seen. It's. Um, Do you think you made good allies early in those early, late 80s, early, this is even when you first uh -huh. started out before, in the yeah. 80s and the 90s? Do you think that the coalitions were there that brought us to where we are today, or do you think they sputtered? My perception is they sputtered for a bit, and then they coalesced when... Right. Well, I mean... Some specific incidents. You know how we always say that in the economies there's booms and busts? The same thing exists, I, I believe, in the, in the social paradigm of community organizations. There are booms and busts. There, uh, you know, you achieve some successes and then people relax. And then, you know, society is never a, uh, a static uh, existence. There's always changes. Everything from technology changes, as we've seen with Uber and how that changes the social dynamics, to... Um, the generation you know people die new people come up they have different values and so the successes of, of one area of, of interest will remain for a while but society changes so you have to continually have unless you had that's why it's important to have institutions the NAACP is important even though institutions will go through high moments or low moments depending on what kind of leadership they have they at least have some memory and they'll continue to be there. NAACP has played a major role in police reform, for instance. Is that why you decided to go into politics? That you you wanted to be part of an, an institution, get some institutional legacy, uh, you instill mean some the of these run values for, run in, for office. Yeah, you mean, yeah, run sense. for office, instill yeah. some of these values into the institution. Well, it, it's funny. I, um, I, I, as you mentioned, I was an activist long before I got on the city council. And I, I realized, particularly as I, you know, I really had a very straight job. I was an insurance broker, and I was spending more and more time doing political activism. And I realized that um, I was spending so much time, I was doing very little, uh, basically, insurance brokering. And I said, you know, there are people who get paid for doing this. Why shouldn't I get paid for doing this? And so that was pretty much like, yeah, I always want to do it full time. I, I enjoyed being an insurance broker in the sense of helping people, but my heart wasn't into it. And I'll tell you a funny story was I was doing towards the end so much political activism, I felt guilty going to the office because people were wondering, is he, you know, actually, I had a lot of clients, but they're mostly poor. Um, so literally to this day, I still have nightmares where I'm walking to the office and people are wondering, what does he actually do? <laughs> and, and then I wake up and everybody's saying, oh, no, I won. That's right. <laughs> did you say you had a lot, a lot of clients who were Oh, I had poor? a lot, yes. I, in fact, at one time I did a count. I probably had more clients than anybody else in the firm, but they were all low, low denominational, <laughs> as they would say. And, uh, and I just gave it all up because... How did they find you, those clients who were low-denominational? I, um, you know, it's one of the things when I joined the firm, it was a very good firm, uh, not a big firm, but a you know, high-powered firm. Uh, I said I didn't want to work on anybody else's business but my own. I'll just develop my own business. And so um, I always maintained lists. In fact, I had lists because I would try to be a pretend journalist. I used to write a thing called... Um, 
white papers, public white papers, which was based on I.F. Stone's writings in Chicago. This is before the Internet, so I used to mail them out, and then when the emails first came out, I probably had 100 people on it. Uh, and then I actually ran for city council in 79 and lost, uh, and um, I had uh, a large list from that. So when I joined the firm in, I think it was 80, 81, I had a lot of names, and I knew a lot of people from multiple organizations I had belonged to. But, but was it a moral issue, a business issue that you thought well, you could be ethical if you were working with uh, lower-income clients? Oh, well, they, a lot of them necessarily lower-income. They're just a lot of, you know, I was dealing with a lot of, I would say, artists who are middle-class educated. You know, they're low-income perhaps by choice or because they can't get, you know, artistic workers don't get paid all that much. Uh, I had actually... I had unions. I had a lot of the smaller uh, nonprofit human service uh, uh, nonprofits that, as I was, I worked on the firm 15 years. As I was there, they grew. So I actually had some very large firms. Oh, I see. That's end. interesting. Yeah. But you started working with the, oh, the, yeah. the people you were working with in, in activism were also seeking your, exactly. your help as an insurance because yes. they needed insurance. And they had to understand the policies. And that was the thing I enjoyed is reading sort of, and I carried over that skill to. Uh, on the city council, I enjoyed reading sort of complicated documents and try to break them down and figure out what they meant. And so I was doing a lot of that for clients. Hey, what? Oh, you were. Yeah. Because it's the same sort of notions. What's the what's what is what's your responsibility with this? Right. Right. And well also, there's probably more no more tricky sort of contract to read than insurance policies because they give in one clause and they take away another and they give back. So they're it's like a puzzle. Hey, why'd you run for uh, city council in 1979? What was your uh, issue? Well, same, well, um, or at that time, you know, concerns was, I mean, it was, you know, tax reform. And I actually, I had run as a campaign manager for a friend of mine who at that time was one of and those people who have been around for a while, will remember the, the Seattle 7, Chip Marshall. He ran in uh, 75 and 77, lost both times. But he came pretty close, and he ran as a as a radical. But he changed quite a bit, I should say, as he as he ran. Um, but I figured, and I had just got my master's degree, and I figured, why not? You know, I mean, I saw what he did. I saw the allies he made in unions, and I knew a lot of unions at that time. And and I saw that it was it was somewhat naive. It's like I'm just want to go for it. You know, I want to change this city around. I've been working on some stuff. Uh, and uh, I did. What do you want to change? Anything in particular? Well, redlining was one of the issues I was involved with um, uh, early on, and uh, so from that, I uh, that was you know, an issue that still f somewhat manifests itself today in, in bank pro uh, policies and foreclosures. But I was working very early on on that issue. In fact, I co-chaired a group with uh, Tim Cease's mother, Margaret Cease, who's passed away. So, and then it was uh, actually active. In the community council network, there was a group that still exists, but didn't, is not as powerful. It used to be called the Central Seattle Federation. Czech, right? Yeah, not Czech. No, I was well actually I was actually chair of Czech as well. But this is another organization that uh, didn't have the um, status of Czech. Czech, you know, had very high status and also a community council. Yeah, community council organization, right? Oh yeah, Federation. yeah. I was uh, I was on. A executive board there. In fact, I put together, again, this is before I ran the first time, a citywide community council uh, forum on problems that communities faced. So I was, I was down in the weeds very early on. You were. You were. Yeah. How'd you take, what'd you take from that defeat? 
Um, do you even I, call it a defeat? Well, it I wasn't mean, a defeat. Lost. I didn't win. Yeah. yeah. Although it's sort of funny. This person later became a very good friend of mine. Was Walter Crowley, who's passed away, and Walt ran the f- same year I did for the same position. So we cut into each other's base, um, and uh, it was it was a bit contentious, but it was good. It was a good sort of contention, and you know, and I did come in third, you know, by one percent. So I could have been in the finalist at that time, um, but it was. But I came away from it is. Um, I'm glad I did it. Challenges are good. Defeat is something you move on from. You know, uh, also one of the things I took away from becoming a citizen activist is uh, know your know your allies, know your constituencies, and try to work together. So you you mentioned the part that you and Walt split the split the progressive vote, You're right? And yeah. that's something you 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 know you talk about it here when you don't be afraid to challenge, but also work with people. Right. In fact, um, one of the sort of uh, sidebar interests I've had is the growth of the Tea Party and who are these people. It reminds me a lot of the George Wallace uh, campaign. In fact, there was just an article in the New York Times yesterday comparing Trump to uh, George Wallace. And um, I attended George Wallace rally, and I, I knew the people there. They were all the people I grew up with, um, lower middle class uh, working class, and um, and when I I've attended two what they call ALEC conferences, which are very sort of Tea Party oriented, but supported by the Koch brothers, and they have now the largest right wing uh, lobby group in the country for state legislatures. In fact, they introduce and pass twice as much legislation as the Democrats do nationally. Alec. Right, and it has shaped the way uh, Congress is uh, apportioned and everything else. Well, because they're very strongly into states' rights, they have allies in Congress that give the states the power, and they control the states. But in any case, I attended there, and I knew what their power structure was, and I realized since we're a nonprofit and I was elected, they couldn't stop me from going. So I went, and I didn't try to pretend it was somebody else. I mean, it wasn't hostile, but I, I got to know the folks, and I realized that and it reinforces my belief, it's not just a question of money. It's also a question of the, the ideological framework that people view the world in that influences where they go. Uh, a lot of people are supporting policies that are not in their best interest. They're supporting uh, oil companies that basically wanted to you know, jack up the rates. And, and they're supporting other kinds of corporations that are not going to improve their lives. But they have a strong belief in liberty and freedom. And I'm trying to think, why is it that the progressives don't tap into that same sort of framework in the same way and get these folks who are very strong supporters and Trump supporters, in fact, um, to recognize that there's another path that, in fact, is more well, beneficial to so them. So did you come to an answer? Do you have an answer for well, that? Because that is slowly, the $64,000 question. Is, and I know he's going to face this. Right. And it, it, it's something that um, continue to work on. I continue to actually write about. In fact, I just recently wrote an article uh, for Crosscut about the ALEC visit and comparing where these people are coming from and what they were thinking and pointing out there are some areas, actually, there is agreement. There's crossover. Interestingly enough, there was a huge recognition amongst all of the conservatives there about the heroin epidemic, which Seattle obviously has been aware of, uh, small communities, uh, drug addiction, and mental health. They added that as well. 
So I understand that you can. All right, but look at let's look at what's happening in Southern Oregon right now with the yes. with the takeover of the mailer right. and and I saw Clive, one of the Bundys, being asked, "Well, if you're going to be serious about this, then shouldn't you be talking to the Paiutes, whose land this originally was?" Right. And he had a deer in the headlights look. Yes. He had uh, what right. he, you know uh, you know history for him started in 1965. Uh -huh. Right. Or you know sometimes they don't even look back to what happened in '34 no, and, and, and in and in '04 when. Yes. When there was water, and yeah. then the water was regulated and manipulated. Yeah. So how do you, how do you think, you talk to those folks in a way that that, at least opens a dialogue? Well, I mean, it's a good question to uh, pose to, uh, or and, was, and and those are questions that continue to pose them, and continue. And the, the point is, you want to engage in conversations with them, in discussions with them, even ones that they may not want to have, um, because. So much of their argument is framed around myths or half truths that. Uh, well, even when you said they like they support liberty and freedom, I mean those are right. Those are very amorphous things. They don't. They don't. They leave out half of the uh, the definition of those. Well, here's the problem: is that, and this is the libertarian strain, is that you define freedom as your freedom, and not the other person's freedom. And what that sort of perspective lacks is the acknowledgement. The, of minority rights, the rights that we all reserve for ourselves. They're big into privacy rights, which is good. That's a door opener. But they don't really, I think, want to acknowledge that part of the Constitution is the Bill of Rights and protecting. I mean, they know the Second Amendment, obviously, the right to keep your gun, as they interpret it. But um, they're weak on recognizing for a democracy to be functional, everyone has to have uh, access to the ballot and everyone has to have access to information and everyone has to have access to public services and those are things that have been denied in the past do you have a sense of why they're weak on that is that a deliberate miseducation by their political leaders well you know i asked john russell the head of ace which is this american county and cities exchange formed by alec to be a counter force to uh, progressives in cities that exact question i said so Tell me, I said, for instance, your policies will lead to a concentration of wealth in this country and concentration of corporate power, and, and aren't you concerned about that? And he said, and I said, and it'll hurt people. And he said, well, working, uh, provide, you know, government can't be everything to all, everyone. So I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? And, you know, if people are in need, that's why we have human service uh, nonprofits. They'll deal with that. So they're their definition of government is actually very, very narrow. In fact, most of them are anti-government in, in the sense that you can't shrink government small enough. And, uh, and also a sense that uh, their, their, their responsibility, as you said, ends where, where their freedom, right. the definition of freedom ends. One of the chapters in this book is the servant in the public servant. Yes. And that notion that the politician is there to serve all of the public. Right also runs up against that 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 notion instead that politicians are useless corrupt mm -hmm. bloated bureaucrats yeah well, these are the same folks right these these alec folks these are the same folks who are in the service of government and their job is as you know one guy said to strangle it and, and run it run it down the bathtub yeah so uh can you open a dialogue with them uh, about the val validity well, of public service there's a couple of things. One is you're not going to. I don't believe you ever convert the hardcore of any of any 
wing of the political spectrum, my strategy is you aim for that middle ground, that middle third. And there are divisions in, in the right wing, just like the divisions in the left wing. And it's recognizing where those divisions are and making the most of them to move the folks that are in that middle third over. And I think that's the strategy. It's not, you're not going to convince someone who's totally committed to a particular ideology. You know, there are occasional conversions, but that, that's a hard task and it's going to spend a lot of energy. I'm, I'm really sort of in some ways a believer and you pick the low-hanging fruit. You pick basically those folks who may align with them. Maybe they're ALEC members, but they also recognize there's other things important. I mean, give it a good example, and I, I didn't talk about this in the book, but I did talk about my article, is that there are people who are very much in favor of supporting um, economic development by giving tax breaks to corporations and businesses called tax inc incremental financing. You know, put up a new building and we won't tax you because you're providing jobs. And I was very surprised that the conversations in these behind the scenes, conservatives amongst themselves is, they were concerned that the, the, these TIFs, as they're referred to, were strangling their own governments. They couldn't provide the basic services they were supposed to provide. And, and they were just really, really irritated what was going on. And there was no argument there. It was not like, oh, well, we have to still you know, support corporations. They were like the point where we gotta do something. So people do understand there's a limit to how far they can carry out their, their ideology. Let me look at, uh, let's look at the streetcars. Yes. And, f and how we have financed public transit in this city. Was that an open democratic debate or was that a debate that was controlled by political interests across the political spectrum? Well, it depends on the particular element, but for instance, the South Lake Union Streetcar was not, in my opinion, an open public debate. That was going to be financed with tax increment financing, wasn't it, at one um, point? It ended up actually in some ways being financed as bad a way because they, it's a little complicated, but they basically took bus service from southeast Seattle and applied it to South Lake Union. And it's a complicated mechanism they did it through, but that's what happened. So, And now you end up with bus service not being as good as it should be in, in southeast Seattle. Um, the, I think what's on the horizon is the First Avenue streetcar, which um, classic case, the argument in favor of it is there's a federal grant that we might get. It'll only probably cover a third of the project. We'll have to raise money. And they said, well, we can do uh, raise money from local businesses. Well, good luck. You're going to end up having to pass property taxes or pass this uh, sales tax or something to basically tax everyone for a line that will not improve transportation, but probably will help shoppers get to shops more often downtown. It's not going to be part of a transportation network. Um, and this is the irony. History does repeat itself. In the in the case of the Pike Place Market, when you know the the mythology now is that the people stopped it from being converted into. Uh, basically uh, a glam fest. Uh, originally, all of the city council was in favor of it. Both newspapers were in favor of it. There were even some businesses in the Pike, in Pike Place Market that were in favor of it. And their strongest argument was basically, we had federal money that would basically pay for half of it. And we should take that federal money. Um, it's, 
it's basically like the first toke is free, and after that, you know, you have to pay. <laughs> so where does so yeah, the, let's the addiction of 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 opportunity from right. somebody dangling it either private sector, or public sector. Right. So how does the citizen activist um, cut through that? Well, again, you need to, I believe, recognize the problem, recognize what uh, an alternative solution is find allies to support that alternative solution. But you also, when I say allies, it's not just people in general or particular groups outside Seattle, I mean outside government. You need to identify people within government who are willing basically to carry the water, to lead the charge, and if they're, near, if they're not in there, then you need to get someone in there who will. And I think we've seen elections uh, with people who run, who are outspent, who do not have endorsements. I mean, my election was like that. Shama Sawant was uh, an example of that. But been, uh, most recently, Liz Herbold, my legislative assistant who ran in West Seattle. They, the chamber literally, along with their allies, spent $200,000 trying to defeat her. It's not because she's a rabid radical. It's because they know that she will read the documents, she will ask the hard questions, and she will basically say, is this benefiting most people? And that's what you need is people in office willing to take that position. And I also believe a lot of folks in office, particularly in the Seattle area, perhaps in, in other areas as well, they really do want to do well for most of the people. <laughs> Often they are scared of doing so because the way campaigns are financed, they're very dependent on a very small group of folks. And these folks are, you know, the, in cities they tend to be developers, in other places they may be, you know, corporate representatives. Inevitably, as individuals, these people are very, very friendly, very nice. They, you know, they're the kind of people that you'd like to go out for a drink with. And so it's hard to imagine someone who you get to know as a lobbyist who's, who's good. You don't think of a lobbyist. You think of them as a good citizen. And Did that happen to you? No. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't go out, ended up going drinking with the uh, developers? No. no. <laughs> I, I, because I had been around so long, I knew how they operated. Yeah, so anyhow, um, citizens need to find someone or convert someone in government to push the envelope. Lisa won in the end. Yes. By how many votes? 39 votes. Yeah. Why did she have the extra 39 votes? What do you think was going on? Was it organization? She was well organized. She was well organized. She issued one position paper after another. I mean, I think, I think actually... Her message got out that she was a hard worker, she knew the issues, and she wasn't going to be bullied. Now, so you wrote this book in part why? Why'd you write this book? Why'd you write Becoming a Citizen? I wrote this book partly, quite honestly, as I wanted to figure out self-analysis, like why is it I ended up here? You know, I, I, in the story, I, I talk about some few examples early on. Yeah, you were a rabble-rising college student. Well, even, <laughs> I mean, to a certain extent, even before that, I mean, like I said, one of the turning points I realized how the people in power aren't always always looking out for you is this little incident that happened in the playground where I noticed were boys piling up on this fat kid. And I went to the nun who's, and I was a very strong uh, believer in the Catholic Church and was all the way actually for many, many years. And with the nun who is the authority, right? Who was the protector. Uh, and I said, you have to do something. And her advice basically is mind your own business. See, there was the freedom. There was the the freedom and liberty lobby. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right in a nutshell. Right there. Right. Exactly. There was your turning point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that might have been it. Because <laughs> you had a different sense. You had a sense of something that 
the justice responsibility. I had a feeling that, yeah, that in fact, in some ways, the nun, the church, represented government to me. Yeah. It was looking out for the greater good for everyone. And because if they didn't, the weaker people would would basically uh, suffer. And maybe that's because I identify with the weaker people. You know, I just figured, hey, I could be next. I could be the person who's being chased at and piled on. So you wrote that in part to sort of analyze where you came from, but did you also write it as a, I mean, a little bit of this reads as also a... Uh, it's a how-to book. A how-to book, yeah. Sure. Well, very much so. Yeah, and and the point was to make the how-to book not sort of a dry step-by-step, uh, but also... These are things that work. These are things that don't work. This is how you need to go somewhere if you want to actually improve your life. What were some of your examples of things that don't work? Well, some of the simply simple ones. For instance, on the uh, initiatives, they were overthrown in the courts because they were poorly written. And so if you go that route, you have to make sure that you, in fact, do cross the T's, you know, dot the I's, and make sure you've got something going there. So, for a long time, the argument has been the conservatives have understood that and the progressives did not. And that's why we had some initiatives. We've had Tim Iman's initiatives also get thrown out. Oh, yeah. They got thrown out. But do you think that that, uh, there's the rigorous intellectual aspect of that notion you're talking about is coming back to progressives? Or do you think progressives are... Oh, I think so. Definitely. You don't think they're feeling a little uh, lazy and self-satisfied because they have Professor Professor Obama and uh, (laughs) (laughs) President Obama, and they have a Seattle, a boom Seattle with progressive politics? Uh, No. In fact, I think that the victories we've we've have achieved here in Seattle have emboldened um, Seattle activists to work with other activists in Washington State, as I just read this morning to push for, uh, for instance, increasing the minimum wage to everyone in the state, not just in Seattle. Moved other cities. Moved other cities. And Seattle uh, moved other cities nationally when we passed the minimum wage and paid sick leave, which we were also in the forefront of. Made major changes in other cities. I can point them out. Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, even New York, Los Angeles, San Diego. These, These are cities that looked at what Seattle did and said, you know, we could probably do something similar to this. Was paid sick leave a good example of having your uh, I's dotted and your T's crossed? Yes. Did you have the arguments in place when people are going to say, this will bankrupt my small business? Oh, in fact, that's one of the examples I use, in fact. of and, You know, data is important, as I referred to it. Or, you know, good information, because uh, it worked in Seattle in that um, politicians don't want to be embarrassed. And uh, and again, if you're aiming for, aiming for that middle strata, you know, of politicians who could be swayed, they sometimes can be swayed by by the data. Not so much because they think it's the right thing, but they but they know that they, if they're going to be criticized, they can lean back on it and point to it. Uh, and with uh, paid sick leave, there were studies that were done, for instance, of the paid sick leave that did exist in San Francisco and how businesses were not negatively impacted. It was hard data to show that. Um, and then, but individual citizens found it difficult to collect that data, analyze it. That's why paid sick leave was able to probably end up having three full-time FT, full-time employees, various institutions that donated them. Economic Opportunity Institute was one of them. Seattle Service Employees Union was another. Said, okay, this is an important issue. We'll put someone on it. And they helped collect the data. They did some original research and were able to help us 
whenever there was someone criticizing it, counteract it. And that's an important part of the process. That's also what ALEC does. That's what those conservative organizations exactly. do. And that's so why they are, in fact, successful at what they do. We sometimes don't do a, enough of it. But they're also successful because I think they have a very more narrow-focused um, philosophy. It's, it's pretty simple, really. It's basically, we want freedom. You know, it's almost going back to don't tread on me, uh, which you know has been there from the very beginning. I think the progressive uh, leftist wing, I think, tends to have a broader sort of focus, and therefore it seems to be sometimes more fuzzy. It tends to be not just freedom, but it tends to be um, economic justice, you know, social equity. Um, you know, you're already racial. using too many words. Yes, exactly. There's too many words. It's just uh, the, uh, you know, they're more accurate. You know, they're more accurate, but they don't um, they don't tap that same sort of emotional response. Yeah, I've been reading a biography of Madison, James Madison. Right. And it's by a uh, an editor of the National Review. Uh huh. So it's uh, who's that? Which uh, one? Brookheiser. Okay. Um, Richard Brookheiser. Uh huh. And so the uh, the uh, the presentation of Madison is in part is this um, character who was a politician in, right. the, in a good sense yeah. understood where to find allies yeah. understood how to be a, the yes man to washington when it was necessary right and uh but what was interesting about it was that uh when the time came for them to consider the constitution madison did not see a need for a bill of rights right because he said look we've got everything here this is going to work trust the people to um know what needs to be right. done in society right. and um hamilton and jefferson and others who you know in many ways were were status quo guys yes uh said no no this is we this is one thing we can't leave out right we have to put it in there because otherwise we won't get this passed in new york right and in some of these other states did the in the book cover the federalist papers and then he goes and writes the federal he and hamilton Yes. Hamilton mostly, but but he as well. Hamilton wrote probably about seventy percent. Yeah. yeah, and then um, what's interesting though is one of the arguments I've heard that Madison opposed the uh, Bill of Rights because he thought it might be too confining. Uh, and then they came up with the the you know all the all these rights that are not enumerated here or not taken yeah. to the states are. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. But the other thing too, I mean, the Federalist Papers, there are so many booklets and pamphlets at Alex about the Federalist Papers. But it's interesting to note that only two people basically wrote 95% of it, and they were never really officially adopted by any organization. They were just out there thrown out for, for discussion purposes. But that's good. That's what they wanted to be, wasn't I it? I know, but but what happens now is the the ALEC and, and the Libertarians treat them almost with the same sort Sacred of sanctity yeah. Yeah, as the Constitution and Bill of Rights. Yeah. Well, there's enough in there that uh, you could... I've been reading some of them. There is enough in there that uh, takes the idea of freedom and does have it oppose, be oppose, uh, does counterpose it, would that be right? Counterposes it with the idea of justice. And, uh -huh. and Hamilton does that sometimes uh -huh. even, when some uh -huh. of the ones he's written. So there is an argument to be made to use the Federalist Papers to uh, right, right, to, yeah. to push for a, a more activist government. Well, yeah, and, and in fact, uh, Hamilton was one of the people who in fact believed that the um, the Federation 
that existed before uh, our republic um, didn't work. He wanted the most stronger central government. So yeah, they missed yeah. they missed on that. And Madison too. I mean, yeah. Madison yeah. too. He knew That's it wasn't right. working. He yeah. knew they, they knew it wasn't working. They knew they had to have something else. City councils change. Right. How do you feel about the city council that you see before you um, coming up in 2016? I have hope. I think that we have people there who do are you have a majority. That remains to be seen. I mean, you may have majorians on some exactly, issues. Exactly. Majority in the Seattle City Council is quite different than other legislative bodies that are uh, higher up in the sense of broader. We, you know, it's a very nonpartisan body. Not only do we run as nonpartisan, for the most part, it's um, it's a very flat organizational institution. Um, the president of the council has very little power. Uh, the committee chairs have very little power, and they may have some. So, and we can also attend any committee we want to and vote on any committee we want to. Most, you can't do that in the state legislature. You right. can't do that in the federal government. And um, also, the committees change literally every two years or every four years. So we rotate the chairs. So you don't build up power or seniority. And the staff works for everyone. You don't, even the state legislature, the staff works for the chair. They don't work for all the committee members. Here, the staff works for everybody. So we have a very, very fluid, we're fortunate, uh, I think legis city legislature and as a result the majority isn't like when we think about it oh you know five strong progressives or Democrats or conservatives or Republicans it doesn't work that way are, are you glad you stayed at the local level I was glad for a number of reasons I looked very closely at Congress and I realized and looking at Jim McDermott he was in office for many years when he was in the minority and you know you get to do some things around the edge but you're not really, you're not creating stuff. I mean, I think in some ways I've had more of an impact on people's lives being on the city council than I would have had if I was in Congress. You never aspired to state legislature or Congress? Well, I'm too lazy to drive down Olympia all the time. So <laughs> I, that would seem like a chore. And quite honestly, even in Congress, you have to fly back to the West Coast all the time. It just, it's, you know, I felt comfortable. I felt like I was getting something done. And, you know, you can't ask for more than that. Did you want to run for another term? Did no. you have any interest? No, I. Um, the only thing I toyed with was, you know, I, it's very funny in the in the book here. There's actually one uh, we discovered after it was published, um, proofreading mistake. I actually was elected to five terms, but they keep saying I served four terms, and it's sort of weird because my fifth term actually was cut in half. So, anyhow, um, this one, this one, yes, and. Because uh, of the I, change I, in the makeup of the way we elect. Because of the district elections, which yeah. I supported, because uh, I knew that I was in some ways truncating my own service. And that was the part that, of all the changes that were made, the thing that most distressed me, because I would have preferred to serve four years. But then I was thinking, well, I could run at large for just to finish out the term, because whoever ran at large this time has to run in two years. But then uh, I've also been writing a lot, and I've always have, and I figured, no, this is the this is the time when I can really devote to to writing, doing some outside organizing, which I'm continuing to do, and it's a good time to quit because, quite honestly, a whole lot of friends, a lot of people like me being in office, and rather than booted out, I'd rather leave while I'm still white. <laughs> you would have been booted out. You'd have, a, you'd have a no. I don't think so. Actually, no. I mean, you never know. Nothing is certain in politics, but you know, I I was smart enough actually to do some polling beforehand, and 
you know, I was relieved to find that my numbers were higher than anyone else's in, in on the council. Strangely enough, actually a nudge ahead of even uh, Shama. So it was like, um, so, I felt I, so I felt like I wasn't leaving because I had to. I was, trying, I was leaving because I wanted to. You wrote this book. You're writing for Crosscut. Are you going to try to be an eminence Greece in the city? Are you going to still comment on politics? Probably. Yeah, I don't know if I'll be eminent or not. I, I maybe oh, you'll be eminent. A crank. <laughs> a crank. Crank Greece, that's good, too. Are you still Are you writing more children's books? Uh, no, the one children's book I really enjoyed writing, which actually I probably came out more out of storytelling than, than anything else. Um, down the road I might, but I actually... I. I have a tr treasure trove of short stories that I'd actually like to, to come out with, and I have uh, another one of essays. So eventually I'll probably do those. That's great. Yeah. So you will be on the on the. Uh, well, whatever. Who knows? I'll probably end up uh, self-publishing and having it on Amazon. <laughs> 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 I mean, I was amazed, quite honestly, that the, uh, as you probably know, the publishing industry is undergoing rapid change, but even before the rapid change, it is an enigma. You know, it's trying to figure out how to get something published. Um, well, this is through Sasquatch. This is through a oh, reputable I, oh, publisher. Oh, very yeah. totally, yes. But in fact, the story behind that is sort of interesting because I actually wrote a whole book on the student power movement that I played a role in, and I drew some lessons from there, but not very many. And when I showed it to about six publishers, they all liked it. They all thought it was well-written, and they all said it wouldn't sell because basically, no one's interested in this subject matter. And uh, Sasquatch you know, read it and said the same thing, but said, you know, there's stuff in there that people would really like to read, given your history and given the lessons that you're sort of pointing out. S you know, come back and take that approach. And I did, and they said, that's it. So personalize it, give examples through your own life. Yeah, and, and, and really make it sort of like, it was actually it was my idea, say like how to do something, how to get something passed, how to actually make change as opposed to I mean, so many books out there, and this is the thing that I found frustrating, one of the reasons I wrote the book, they write about what's wrong with the US, they write about how corporations are bad, they write about how the struggle goes on, but not enough of them are talking about how do you actually get something done, and most of them are on a national level, which is way beyond people's ability to, to directly impact. Very few are actually done like, what can you actually do in your own community? What can you actually do in your own city to get some power? Just as you write in the back of the book. Yeah, you can fight City Hall. <laughs> Anything I left out? No, I think uh, I think we've covered it all. Thank you very much well, for having me on your show. We didn't cover it all, Nick. Well, no, I mean, there's a <laughs> lot of stories in there. I, you know, I was a storyteller back in grade school. We used to go out camping. Inevitably, I would be the storyteller for the campground. And I think, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln, you know, most of his you know, great sort of approaches with telling stories, very short, you know. Um, they make it interesting, and I find them interesting. Um, but you don't have them too long. You want them short and punchy and have a point. All right. So on that note, thank you. Thank you. Nick Licata's book, published by Sasquatch, Becoming a Citizen Activist, Stories, Strategies, and Advice for Our Changing World, available online and at bookstores everywhere. Nick is taking the stage at Town Hall January 19th talk about his book and through stories, get people inspired. We will be back at the Brian Corner Cafe to record another episode of That Stack of Books with Nancy Pearl and a whole host of people who show up to talk about the books they're reading, 
why don't you join us? Love to see you there. Bryant Corner Cafe on the corner of 32nd and 65th in the Bryant neighborhood. They have great cookies. They have great coffee. We have a big table. We sit around it and talk about books. We will be there about 3 o'clock on Tuesday, January 19th. Love to see you there. And thanks for listening. Happy reading.